This week on the In-Depth Podcast, Clayton Kershaw, the Dodgers' starting pitcher, just wrapped up his 16th year in the big leagues, a season in which he passed Don Drysdale for the second most wins in Dodgers history. The three-time Cy Young winner talks about his early dreams of making it to Major League Baseball. I think any kid, you know, you want to be a professional baseball player, but the dream never really goes past that. So. Uh, it definitely, you know, is beyond anything I ever dreamed about. But before his 2020 World Series triumph, the future Hall of Famer had gained the reputation as a postseason failure. You know, you definitely don't want to fail uh, your last game. And, you know, I think until you pitch that next game, uh, you know, you're always going to have doubts. The Dodger star opens up about that disappointment, as well as his game day mentality. There will be times when teammates come up to you and say something to you and you just won't hear them uh, because you're like that focused. And the inspiration for his charity's work in the poorest regions of Africa. With an orphanage, you get to help, you know, maybe 10 kids out at a time. But with this, you know, hopefully hundreds are moving in and out and in and out. And, uh, you know, that, w- that would be a pretty cool thing. Clayton very much seemed like a big kid. He lived in what seemed like a very modest house considering his stature in suburban Dallas. I will say in the 14 years of this show, 14 seasons, that is the one time I have been late to an interview. And I was late by maybe 60 seconds, but to be pulling up and having Clayton just standing there waiting for me was so embarrassing. I, one can't believe I was late in the first place. You always show up early, obviously. Uh, Two, was incredibly disrespectful on my end. And three, I've always had that instance in the back of my mind and will never be anywhere close to being late for a taping ever again. When we sat down in November 2013, Kershaw was just coming off his second Cy Young Award, and that's where our conversation began. So, I mean, first the uh, Cy Young. Yeah. How satisfying is it to win? It's definitely a cool feeling. I'm not really sure. Uh, you never expect to win anything like that. You know, growing up, you always think about trying to make it to the big leagues and doing that type of stuff. So, uh, but you never think about actually winning awards or winning World Series or things like that. So, uh, you know, to get to do that and get to be associated with those names is is uh, is really cool. And it's just it really is just a huge honor. And it's interesting, you, you said that, and I read your book and uh, enjoyed it, and you talked about it in your book how, uh, you know, your dream was to make it to the big leagues, but you never really dreamed of doing anything special. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I think any kid, you know, you, you always want to, you know, I, I love baseball, and so obviously you want to be a professional baseball player, but the dream never really goes past that. You just want to just want to be in the big leagues. And uh you know, you don't really think about all that other stuff that, you know, you want to have, have success, you want to, you know, win World Series and things like that. So uh, it definitely, you know, is beyond anything I ever dreamed about. And uh, it's, uh, it's fun. How did you celebrate? Uh, yeah, so we had, some, we had some really good friends and family over here, um, you know, just people kind of close to us. And, uh, you know, that way if the, you know, it didn't go our way, if we didn't win or anything like that, at least we'd, uh, 
you know, still have a party anyway. So, uh, did you really think there was any chance that you wouldn't win? You never know. <laughs> you never know. You never want to assume anything. You never want to, especially it doesn't look great if you have a big blowout party before, you know, so, uh, right. we just wanted to make sure to, you know, kind of keep it toned down. And then, you know, after that, we started telling people to come by and say hi and stuff like that. So we had a fun time though. Your friend and Dodgers teammate, uh, you know, Sean Tallison uh, yeah. said if, when he was talking to you, if, you didn't win it, you really would have felt like you lost. Um, like what, yeah. What's the kind of mindset there? Is that just kind of because you're so competitive? Uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's a, you know, I guess you do kind of in a way lose the, you know, but uh, um, to be associated, be a finalist is pretty cool in itself. But once you get to that point, obviously you want to win. You know, I guess there's a little bit of disappointment if you don't win, and then obviously it's, it's pretty cool when you do. We were talking about uh, big league dreams when you were growing up. There was a, a student leadership class that you took in high school, and I, I think yeah. because you were going after your wife, Ellen, yeah. at yeah. the time. But uh, th there was uh, a topic that came up about dreams and influential people, and you speak about in your book how that was actually kind of a defining moment for you. Yeah, well, you know, I, didn't, I never wanted to take any extra class than I had to. So uh, Ellen's mom had signed her up for this leadership class. And, you know, I started thinking Ellen was pretty cool and uh, I wanted to hang out with her a little bit more. So I figured I'd get in good with the, the parents and go to the class. And uh, it was a leadership class and he was talking about, you know, getting, uh, getting acclimated into high school and, uh, you know, starting to do some extracurricular activities or sports or whatever it may be. And uh, you know, he started talking about dreams and uh, what you might want to do now to get to that point. And uh, he started asking people what they want to do. And, you know, I just, I was kind of bluntly, but matter of factly, just kind of said, I want to play baseball. I want to be a baseball player. And, uh, you know, he wasn't intentional about it, but he started rattling off all the stats about, you know, all the odds that are against you. And, you know, 1% go to college and then 1% of that goes to the minor leagues and just there, there from there and there and there. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I kind of took that personally a little bit. It kind of motivated me in a way and just to be like, hey, who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? And um, Did, did it know. really bother you at the time? It did. I kind of got, uh, I got, 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 got upset a little bit. Um, I just wasn't expecting that response because, you know, when you're a kid, you never really think about uh, the odds or the negative side of it. You just, you want to play baseball and it's going to happen. You don't really think about that until, you know, you get a little older, but. And this um, is a teacher too. I mean, somebody that's supposed to be encouraging. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think he meant it like right. that. I think he was just trying to, uh, you know, kind of be a realist and, uh, it was good for me though. You know, I, I never really thought about the other side. Well, you know, this might be kind of hard and, uh, you know, it's not just going to be handed to me. So I think that was good for me to motivate me and, uh, you know, work at it a little bit. Uh, I want to take you through some of the notable games uh, th throughout your career, one of which in high school, uh, you're playing uh, Justin Northwest High School uh, playoff game, yeah. and you pitch an all-strikeout perfect game. Uh, yeah. At what point in that game did you really know, like, something's going on here. Well, you know, I have to be honest. It was just five innings because it was a mercy rule. So, but uh, yeah, perfect yeah. games are perfect games. Yeah, I mean, it was, so you don't really think about it, though, because it was only five innings, and you play seven innings in high school. So I, I hadn't let myself think about it. But, uh, you know, we ended up scoring that 10th run. We, we won 10 to 0, and, uh, and it just kind of happened like that. And I, I didn't really, I don't think I even realized what happened until after the game had ended and people started telling me what was going on. I do remember, uh, um, you know, people coming up to me after the game and, you know, telling me congratulations and things like that. And it was a playoff game, so it didn't mean a lot for us. And, um, you know, it was just, uh, 
You really, I really didn't. I really didn't think about it a whole lot. How about uh, May 2008, you're playing for the Dodgers minor league team, the Jacksonville Suns. It's a game against the Carolina Mudcats, and you're pitching. And after the first inning, the manager pulls you. Yeah, uh, yeah. Take it from there. Well, I thought I did something wrong. You know, I, I was like, what is going on? You know, I, I asked our manager, you know, what, what's the deal? And he said, don't worry about it. Just go in the clubhouse and hang out because you can't tell me anything yet. And so. And genuinely, you thought something was wrong? Well, I started getting, uh, after I started thinking about it, I was like, what could possibly this be about? And, uh, but so I had eight innings to think about it until the game ended. So I'm sitting in the clubhouse and I'm like, what is going on? You know, and. Uh, after the game, he calls me in the clubhouse and, you know, tells me that, you know, I got called up. And uh, it was a special time for me. I still remember it. Uh, you know, he, told, he tells me I can't tell anybody family-wise because, uh, you know, he, the other person on the Dodgers is going to get cut or released. And we, we, he doesn't know yet, so don't, don't tell anybody until we tell him. But I, I couldn't hold it in. I wouldn't call Ellen. I wouldn't call, uh, you know, I told her to just kind of round up as many people as you can and get to L.A. And... Uh, it worked out. We had, uh, you know, probably 20 or 25 people at uh, my opening, my first game, and it was pretty cool. Well, you said it was when you actually found out. Uh, you, you wrote it was the most ridiculous feeling you've ever experienced. Yeah, I mean, it was... Like, in, in what ways? Just, I think, it, during, during the minor leagues when you play all that time, and you always know that that's what you're working for, but while, while, during the season, you don't really think about that. You're just kind of playing. And so once it hits, it's like the initial shock, like, oh my gosh, my dreams come true, I'm going to the big leagues, and then a matter of, oh my gosh, I really have to do this, I have to get people out, I want to stay up there, and so there's a little bit of fear, a little bit of anxiety, uh, a lot of excitement, um, it's just kind of a whirlwind. What did you say when you called the first person? Uh, I said, Ellen, don't tell anybody, but uh, I got called up, and uh, Ellen, she's probably one of the more enthusiastic people uh, in the world. So it was, uh, it's really fun to get to celebrate things with her. And she, uh, you know, she was just so ecstatic for me. And I think I was still kind of in shock. But, uh, you know, once she started celebrating and I saw, you know, I heard her excitement, it was, uh, I started getting excited too. So how does Jason Schmidt uh, play into the, the first day with the big league club. Yeah, well, Schmidt, he's a prankster too. You know, he's a little, he was kind of an older veteran guy, but he was, he loves to pr joke around and stuff. So, uh, you know, I, I'm pitching the Sunday day game and I show up Saturday night and I get to watch the game. And, um, you know, Jason, uh, they put my locker right next to his. And, uh, you know, I'm not really thinking about it. And I kind of just reach into the locker and uh, grab, grab what I thought was my jersey. And uh, it happened, it happened to be his. And uh, he, he noticed right away. Uh, so he told everybody in the clubhouse not to say anything. So I, I walk out for the national anthem, and we all have to stand on the rail. And um, you know, Jason thinks it's hilarious. The national anthem starts, and they just they pull up on my face, and then they go straight to the back, and it says Schmidt 29 on it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, first day in the big leagues, and uh, I mean, the whole team was just cracking up. It was uh, it was a good welcome to the big leagues moment. Oh, were you having fun with it at the time, or were you like? Oh, I was embarrassed. Pretty, yeah, <laughs> I was embarrassed. I really was. I. <laughs> it's one thing if you know a joke's happening, and you. But if you have literally <laughs> have no idea, it's a little bit different. Did anybody say anything to you afterwards? Yeah, uh, I mean, I went straight into the clubhouse and changed. But uh, it, he actually was wearing my jersey too, so it was. Uh, he just, but he knew it was going on, so he, he enjoyed it a lot more than I did. Kershaw's challenge, your charity, 
Um, obviously, you and your wife, Ellen, have spent a considerable amount of time now in Africa. Um, I understand before you first went, there was a reluctance, hesitation on your part to actually go over there. Yeah, well, you know, um, it, there's a lot of anxiety that goes into uh, going over there, I think. And, uh, you know, Ellen had talked about it forever. And, I, you know, I was and once she came back from that first time, uh, I knew I was going to have to go because it was such a big part of her life. And um, I say have to because it wasn't really on my heart. It really wasn't a passion of mine. Um, but, I, you know, I wanted to support her in that. How would you describe what you saw the first time? Uh, well, I saw kind of two drastic things. I think, obviously, uh, the poverty is, is amazing. And the, just uh, the it, it, it's... It's, it's not depressing, but it is tough to see sometimes. You know, I think, uh, you know, you, you understand that Africa is a third world country, but until you go over there and you see the living conditions that some of these people are living in, um, it, it is, it, it touches you. It, it's hard to see. Um, but then the other thing I noticed right off the bat was uh, these kids that are running around the streets uh, are smile, you know, they're smiling, they're joyful, uh, their culture, they're just so happy with, uh, you know, as long as their basic needs are met, they're, they're a really happy, happy culture. And uh, that, uh, that was pretty awesome to see too, and it, it kind of I started thinking about back here. If we don't get the right Christmas present, we're upset, you know. And these these people, if they have the right food, clothing, and shelter, they're the most joyful culture I've ever seen. Right, and you don't realize, and really under you were talking before the interview, and I mentioned I spent some time in Africa too, and you don't realize what you know how dire the poverty actually right. is in some of these yeah. areas until you actually can see it firsthand because yeah. nothing you see in a magazine or on TV can really, yeah. you know, until, do, do uh, it justice. Yeah, I mean, until you make it real, until it's uh, like, until you really see it and feel it and understand what uh, these people are living in in a day-to-day -day culture and society, it's, uh, it's, it is tough to explain. And Ellen, you know, Ellen would try, but, uh, you know, until... You know, she kind of said, until you go over there, you're really just not going to understand a part of my life. So, uh, you know, three weeks after I got, we got married, I was over there with her. And that, that was the thing that impressed me, too. I spent time in uh, Kibera slums in Nairobi, Kenya, like 800,000 people living on 600 acres. And, and th these kids who, uh, I mean, malnourished, you know, have limited hope. I mean, they're running around with a, a smile on their face and it did I mean you said yeah. it wasn't depressing yeah well I think that's that's kind of the whole thought behind Kershaw's challenge you know our charity is that um, you know we we didn't do anything to deserve what we have and it, it's it's just a, it's just a huge blessing that we get to be in this country get to you know go home to you know warm meals and get to sleep with the roof over our head and stuff like that and so with that in mind uh, you know to whom much is given you know much is expected and so that's a uh, you know, we want to be able to give back, and I think that's uh, that's just you know, the, the better you do, the more you give. That's kind of the way Kershaw's challenge is kind of the theme of it, and uh, you know, we just we want to be able to to help people, and uh, it's just you know, it's it is tough to see, but you know, and it gets overwhelming because you see so much poverty, and you're like, well, what can one person do? But uh, you know, once you get going, once you just take that first step, it uh, you know, the steps align pretty easily after that. Uh, how did the idea of really come to fruition for the orphanage? Uh, Hope, a little girl named Hope. That's probably the, uh, the, the starting point for all this. She was a fighter, but she, uh, she needed help. And Ellen kind of instantly felt the connection with her and, um, you know, called me and 
she just said, yeah, I don't know why, but we need to do something. And so we started, uh, we started sponsoring her. And uh, you know, we, were, we were able to get her some food and some medication. She's HIV positive, and uh, you know, she just needed her meds. But in order to take her meds, she needed the right food to you know, combat the, the medicine. And um, it was just, uh, you know, that, that was a good starting point. But she needed more. She needed a family. She needed a place to call home. And, um, you know, that's, that's what started Kershaw's Challenge, kind of. You know, we wanted, uh, we wanted to build a home for her and give her a spot, and now, uh, now she's doing great. And to give this some context, some of these areas are places where, you know, no electricity, no sewage, no running water, uh, meals are, consistent meals are, are rarity for uh, people that live in some of these, you know, areas. And, um, you know, you could see a 12-year-old girl raising her brothers and sisters in like a shack that they live in because they don't have parents that uh, died of AIDS. Um, t tell about the plans that you guys have to renovate the school and then build the community center. Yeah, so, uh, th so the orphanage is running great and obviously we're going to still support that and make sure that that's always up and running and a good spot for these kids to go. And, uh, but we've, we've also uh, worked with a school called Destiny School. Uh, so the money that we raise this year is going to go towards building some more classrooms onto the school and uh, really just expanding it and uh, you know giving these kids a, a better chance to learn. So there's you know you know 20 or 30 in a class as opposed to 50 or 60 or 75 even at times. And uh, that's uh, that's what the majority of the money is going to this year. And then yeah, our overarching theme is we kind of want to build just like a a place where people can go. You know uh, maybe not spend the night there, but at least can go and uh, you know get a meal and uh, just kind of, uh, you know, maybe go to a, a microfinance class and learn how to make money and so they can kind of, you know, be self-sufficient. You know, just things like that. We're calling it a community center. Um, that's, a, that's kind of a longer term goal, but hopefully, uh, you know, in the next few years we can start building on that and uh, that would be, uh, that'd be a really cool thing to see. I think it can touch a lot more people because with an orphanage, you get to help, you know, maybe 10 kids out at a time. But with this, you know, hopefully hundreds are moving in and out and in and out and, uh, you know, that would, that would be a pretty cool thing. You and your wife, Ellen, I think have a unique relationship from the standpoint of how long you dated before you got married. You were, you know, high school sweethearts. Uh, how old were you guys when you first uh, started dating? Uh, freshman year. So we were, uh, she was a little bit older. She was 15. I was uh, 14. Oh, uh, man. Yeah. Young, uh, Young love, but uh, no, it was, uh, you know, we were, you know, Ellen kind of says this too, is I think we were just kind of more friends, you know, and kind of became best friends, and, uh, you know, it, we just enjoyed hanging out with each other, and uh, it was, uh, we kind of ran in the same circles, had the same group of friends, and so it was, uh, it was just, a, it was a fun time for us. Uh, you remember how you officially asked her out? Yeah, I do. Uh, just, uh, you know, I, I was working up some courage the class before, and uh, I was like in a passing period in the hallway, and uh, you know I, I was right. I was going to lunch, and so I asked her out. She said yeah, and uh, I went and told all my buddies in the cafeteria. So it was uh, it was a good day. <laughs> um, you know, I, I I know you don't have any siblings, but uh, you know Ellen's siblings and her family have kind of uh, become your family. You said she was kind of the first person that you really. You said in your book she was kind of the first person you really opened up to. Yeah, well, I'm not a big talker. You know, I uh, I'm not great at talking, especially about myself and stuff. It's just uh, not it's just not fun for me to do for some reason. But uh, you know, I think she, uh, you know, she she wasn't buying that, 
And, uh, you know, uh, I, I did. I talked to her a lot. And uh, she was really easy to talk to. And she's, she's great at that. You can, you can ask all her friends, too. She's just, uh, she's, uh, she doesn't like to talk about herself, either. She's just kind of a great listener. So one of us had to talk. So we took turns. And, um, you know, it was great. And, uh, yeah, you know, her family, um, you know, kind of just encompassed my mom and I. And we kind of became part of the family pretty easily, too. So it was... Uh, it was awesome, and then, you know, I, I've always said, you know, family's what you make it, so, you know, my, my best friends are, I think, my family, and, you know, obviously, Alan's family's now my family, too, so, you know, if you ask me, I feel like I got a pretty big family. Well, why do you find it difficult to talk about yourself? I don't know. I get awkward about it. I don't know. Uh, it's just, I don't know. <laughs> I'd rather talk about other stuff, I guess. Uh, leading in the evening that you ultimately proposed, Ellen was actually crying before you came over because you hadn't proposed to her. Well, yet. I think, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think uh, she came home for Thanksgiving. She was in college and I was home for the off season. And um, she, uh, I guess she, I think she kind of expected I was gonna propose over Thanksgiving. And let alone I had this, this whole grand scheme of things to propose over Christmas break. And, and how uh, old are you at the time? I got married when I was 22. So I was 21 when I okay. proposed, yeah. And uh, been dating since 14, 15 yeah, years we, old, so you guys been dating. We were definitely yeah. familiar with each other by then. And uh, um, yeah, she wasn't, I, I don't, I think she was a kind of expecting that, but then that was great because she hadn't, I think she was like, well, I have no idea if, if or when this is ever going to happen. So by the time Christmas break rolled around, it wasn't on her mind at all. And it was a pretty big surprise to her, I think. So I mean, tell about how you. You're gonna make what a guy proposing? tell the proposal story. I mean, I that's mean, a kind of an impressive oh my proposal. Gosh. All right. Well, uh, you're kind of being awkward. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, so this is. Uh, well, I guess I pick her up and we go to Six Flags. I guess that's the first step. And there was a lot of thought and planning. Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to have a full day of fun, and uh, you know, I we went to Six Flags, and um, I got you know I. I Big spender, got the VIP pass, got to go to the front of the lines and, uh, you know, rode some rides the whole day. It was cold and windy and it was not the best day for Six Flags, but we had fun with it. And then uh, uh, we came home and I told her we were going to go to dinner and uh, we went to dinner and uh, we, uh, we went to like the, in Dallas, they have the, the little reunion ball and uh, there's a restaurant that rotates around and uh, we got to go up there and that was, uh, you know, had an awesome dinner and I actually, I got a limo too, and still, Ellen to this day says, I just thought you were being fun for a date and had no idea. And uh, then we, we go back to uh, my uh, townhouse at the time, and uh, um, Ellen's sister and her brother had helped me decorate it with Christmas and a bunch of Christmas trees and stuff like that. And it was, uh, um, I proposed there. She said yes, it was good. I'm sure I'm leaving out some good details, but. Uh, and then from there, we went over to her parents' house and all of her friends and my friends and family were there too. So it was a fun night. At what point do you think she realized what was actually going to happen? She had to have known something was up at dinner. She claims not just be, but uh, you know, it's not like we go out in limos every day. So uh, she, uh, she, I'm sure she had to know something different was going on. Faith. Um, yeah. You know, you never seemed like were fully interested um, in faith when you were younger. Um, and that started to change as you got older. Yeah, well, you know, um, I think, uh, you know, I think for me, you know, you grow up in Dallas and we grew up in Highland Park, this awesome community. And, um, you know, I think you call it, everybody kind of calls themselves a Christian around here. And so I, I started doing the same thing. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And, you know, I went to church on Sundays and kind of did all the things. But 
Um, you know, I don't think it was until probably like junior, senior, sophomore, maybe sophomore year, sophomore, junior year that I was really like, well, what is this, you know, what is Jesus? What does this really mean to me? You know, what is this Jesus guy all about? And, um, you know, I didn't want to just keep calling myself that without having some type of knowledge. So it wasn't until I started asking myself those questions that, you know, I really started to make, uh, you know, my faith my own and, you know, really kind of gave, uh, kind of gave control over to him. And um, that was, uh, that was a big step for me, for sure. You know, I, all, all the things that I do, all this baseball stuff, uh, you know, everything in Africa, all the charities is all that stuff is all great, but the ultimate glory is not for us. You know, we're not here to try and, uh, try and gain accolades for ourselves and gain fame and all this stuff. I think, you know, the reason that um, we play baseball and I get to do interviews like this is to understand that, you know, God gave us all these opportunities uh, to glorify Him. And I think that's, uh, that's, uh, that's kind of what uh, it's all about. Uh, you have a favorite Bible passage? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I say it's Colossians 3.23. Um, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as if you're working for the Lord, not for men. And, uh, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a Bible scholar or anything like that. I do, uh, uh, you know, I, I do, uh, I can't quote as many verses as I should be able to, but um, that's one for me that really hits home because, um, you know, it, it shows that God's going to give you the tools and He's going to give you the abilities, but it's up to you to work at it, and it's up to you to cultivate that and uh, glorify Him through what you do. And that is, uh, you know, so ultimately all that work you put in for baseball, all that work you put in for Kershaw's Challenge, um, you know, you do it because you want to, but ultimately you do it for Him. The, the kind of group of friends you grew up with and wh where you grew up, everybody, for the most part, seemed to have similar views, values, religious yeah. beliefs, and then uh, you get to the minor leagues, uh, yeah. completely different story. The, the first time, you're kind of out of the bubble that you grew up in. Yeah. Um, what, what was it like having to explain to people your religious views who, you know, were probably looking at you a little bit cross-eyed? Well, you know, I, I don't know if it was cross-eyed, but I think, uh, you know, more than anything, uh, it was just people came from completely different backgrounds, like you said. So, uh, you know, what I've learned with, uh, you know, is that you, you love everybody regardless. And so for me, what that means is you kind of show it with your actions first. And you kind of just, you just talk to guys and you just kind of see where they came from and what they're all about. And, uh, you know, they're just, they'll notice something different about you or something that you do and they might ask a question. And, uh, you know, for me, that's kind of the opportunity that you, you talk about it with guys. But, um, yeah, it was definitely a culture shock. It was definitely, you know, you, you come in and guys have never heard of, you know, Jesus or never heard of, you know, Christianity or what it means and, um, or they have and they just completely disregard it. So it's, uh, it's one of those things where um, you definitely learn how to uh, be bold in your faith because, you, you know, they're going to question you on it. And, you know, around here you never really get questions. It's just kind of assumed. But that was great for me. It kind of helped me have, a, uh, have my guard up and be able to uh, be bold about my faith with these guys. And, uh, you know, they, they uh, you know, some of them are still my best friends to this day. Junior year in high school, you visit coach uh, Skip Johnson. Yeah. Um, how did he help you mechanically? Yeah, well, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of, like, uh, pitching lessons, per se, growing up or anything like that. But Skip, uh, yeah, in between junior and senior year, going into senior year, um, you know, I started working with Skip a little bit. And uh, he, uh, he kind of helped me with mechanics. You know, I just, I never really had, like, a full talk about it until Skip. And uh, he, he really helped me out. It helped you out a ton. Yeah, I for mean, sure. Because you, like, it was almost as if overnight you gained five miles 
an hour on like the fastball, right? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot that went into it. You know, I think, uh, you know, I used to throw kind of sidearm and I kind of went back to over the top and, um, you know, be, being able to just kind of use your body the right way. And um, yeah, definitely uh, Skip had a big part to do with that. What, what If it wasn't for your time with him, how do you think it um, maybe what transpired the end of high school and where you got drafted and all of that. Yeah. How do you think it would have differed or, or would it have differed at all? Um, yeah, you know, I don't really think about it. You know, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, who knows how I would have pitched senior year without without Skip or without the, the tutelage that he had given me. So, uh, yeah, I don't know, honestly. Could be, uh, could be a lot different story. Early in your career, uh, pitching coach uh, Rick Cunnicutt and uh, your then manager, uh, Joe Torrey uh, were very insistent on you making uh, a certain adjustment. Um, explain what that was and how you know it took a while before you kind of gave in. You know, Honey, Honey's great, and I, I've worked with him forever. And um, you know, I was I was struggling again. You know, after you know, I, I had some bumps my first few years, and uh, basically what was happening was I was I had two pitches. I had a fastball and a curveball, and uh, you know, didn't throw a changeup a whole lot, um, but you know, I was having trouble throwing my curveball for strikes, and so basically, I was a one-pitch pitcher. You know, all they had to do was take the curveball, and they just start hitting fastballs. And uh, they basically said, "Hey, you need to figure out. You need to start throwing this curveball for strikes, or you need to figure out another pitch to throw strikes, or else it's going to be real tough for you." And uh, started working on a slider, uh, and uh, it was kind of natural to me. It kind of felt good coming out of my hand, and. Uh, kind of took it, I worked on it in one bullpen and then came in the next game with it through it a few times. And then from there, just kind of more and more consistent. I was able to throw it for strikes and, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of what happened. And you've credited to having control of your slider as kind of a made a significant yeah. turning point. Yeah, that's, that was huge just because, uh, you know, as a hitter, you try to eliminate pitches and, uh, you know, if you're, if you're able to throw a few different pitches for strikes, they have trouble eliminating that. So, you know, whether it's a good slider or not, it's a different speed, it's a different look, and, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they, have to, they have to respect that. So that was huge for me. How much is deception part of the pitching style? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's something to that. Um, you know, definitely not something I try to do, but I think just the mechanics of my delivery are deceptive. That's at least what... Other people have said they have a tough time picking up the ball or things like that. So when uh, I think you first got your college uh, scholarship, um, I believe you were at the time concerned, you know, just how you'd have gas money to uh, get to college, and you end up uh, getting drafted uh, first round. Uh, you know, forego college to have the opportunity to play. Uh, professional ball in, in the big leagues. There was a moment you talk about in your book where you're, I believe, out to lunch uh, having burgers with uh, your agent or your advisor at the time, and uh, he tells you like how much you could potentially make for signing. How well do you recall? I, I do remember that. He kind of asked me, you know, what you, what would you be willing to forego college for, and. I threw out some number and, uh, you know, <laughs> and he said, well, you know, maybe double that and that's what you could get, you know, if you keep, keep doing what you're doing. And, uh, you know, I just, I, I, a lot of emotions with that too is, uh, you know, it's just, uh, just an incredible feeling to know that you might get to play baseball past high school and then that you don't really have to, uh, 
you know, that's that part of your life is, uh, you know, you don't have to uh, think about money in terms of what your next decisions are. And that's uh, that was a pretty cool thing. Yeah, I mean, but more so than that, too, I would imagine. I, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, money was tight growing up, and it has to be such a satisfying feeling to know that here, because of your success, you're going to be able to, you know, take care of your family. Yeah, and that's uh, that, that was a great feeling. You know, I think it was hard for me because I wanted to, you know, like I said before about my faith is that you, you don't, you want to try and control everything, you know, and, uh, you know, for me, it wasn't until, you know, and I started, I worried about all that stuff. I worried about money. I worried about, um, you know, just what was going to happen in the future and all that stuff. And I didn't really believe that, um, you know, it was all going to work out. And it wasn't until I kind of started relinquishing control of my own life that uh, I, everything started kind of falling into place the way that uh, it, it did. And so that was that was a big step for me. In what way? Yeah, relinquishing. I started. I stopped worrying as much. You know, worrying is uh, is kind of a, you know, it's it's not a trusting thing. You're not putting your trust in God. You're not, you know, and it's it's not easy to do. You know, especially sometimes you, you you've got worries. You've got struggles. How is this ever going to figure out? And um, until you realize that somebody has a bigger plan for your life than you, um, you know. I could have never expected in my wildest dreams I'd be sitting here talking to you about stuff. And so, um, you know, I was only focused on the next day. What can I possibly do to uh, do all this stuff and, you know, stay up at night worrying and being anxious and all this stuff. And, um, you know, it wasn't until I was like, hey, you know, he, he's got this. I don't need to worry about this. That I started, I kind of just kind of was relieved. And so, um, you know, that draft day and everything couldn't have worked out. Uh, and I could have never dreamed that for myself any better than what happened. How do you handle that? I mean, uh, espe especially at that age, because you're what, like 18? Yeah. Uh, you just you just don't change. You know, I think for the nothing, you know, nothing nothing should really change if you have ten dollars or ten million dollars. You know, I think uh, you can help some more people and you can you know take care of some debts or anything like that that you have, which is awesome. But you know, at the end of the day. You know, money shouldn't change you. You know, it should, you should be the same person. And, um, you know, other than maybe, you know, buying dinner for friends every once in a while, I don't think, I think a whole lot should change. What would you say your first 15 minutes of fame were when you were growing up? Um, let me th well, I guess it was right after I got drafted. You know, I think, uh, you know, you get drafted and then, you know, I signed with the Dodgers or you, you fly out to LA to get all your physicals and stuff. And, uh, you know, I got to go to the game. I got to go to a game, and they introduced uh, myself and uh, Preston Mattingly on the field. We were the first-round picks that year, and uh, you know that was kind of cool. You get introduced to a Dodger crowd, and you get to wave. And um, I guess that was kind of my first like, wow. You know, these people. Hopefully, I get to pitch in front of these people, and uh, you know that, that was probably my first like, wow. You know, this is it's kind of cool. I, I want to talk to you about like mentality as it relates to you pitching and. Um, a, as an athlete, but first, uh, you know, I, I was told to ask uh, about the music that you use to get yourself pumped up. It's uh, so I, you know, workouts. Day one is is so I call day one the day after you pitch, and so that's uh, that's a really fun day for me. I get to go in there and just kind of get to blow it out, workout wise, running wise, and it's always fun when you get a group in there and you're kind of working out together. It's just it's just a lot more fun that way. But 
I definitely like to blare some music in there and just kind of, I call it getting weird. A lot of guys, uh, you know, started getting on the bandwagon with me. So it was pretty fun. Yeah, but getting weird, you know, you're, you're, uh, Ellen put uh, Beyonce in the book that you, you would blare that going to the stadium. So then I asked uh, some of your teammates and I heard it was, you know, in addition to Beyonce, Taylor Swift, yeah. Kelly Clarkson, yeah. Avril Lavigne. Yeah, those, I mean, are the, those are the go-tos. They're all classics. Uh, they really are. They're good songs. Um, you know, it's, I mean, but those are, the, it's like the pop songs. That, that uh, you, you know, know, I like the pop songs. I'm okay. starting to like the, like the electronic house music, just the beats that go on and on and on. So like after three hours, your head's just like, it's about to explode. But that's, uh, you know, the, the, that's pretty fun, the remixes and stuff like that. Um, I understand on game day when you're actually pitching, um, there will be times when teammates come up to you and say something to you and they're literally looking right at you and you just won't hear them. Uh, because you're like that focused. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, my teammates, Ellen says I've gotten better on game day about, um, you know, being able to communicate a little bit in the morning. Uh, I used to just kind of, I not not like mean or anything, but just kind of like emotionless, just kind of like not just not a fun person, not a lot of personality. And well, why, uh, why do you think that? I is? don't know. I, I guess I have like a maybe some anxiety about pitching that night and uh, you know, just want, I'm just thinking about it too much or something. But I think before I get to the field, I've gotten a lot better about that. But yeah, once I get to the field, like, I think I'm still able to talk to guys and I'm still able to communicate, but, uh, you know, I definitely don't want to just shoot the breeze. You know, I'm not just sitting there, you know, wanting to, you know, ask guys how their day was. Well, and it's interesting because your teammates have said that you've also noticeably gotten better with that. Like, you'll hear things more that they yeah, say to you yeah. now than was the case, you know, even a year or two ago. Yeah, I think it's just, uh, I don't know whether I just thought I had to be that way, but um, it, it definitely, it helps me a little bit to, um, you know, I definitely have a, um, something in the back of my head that I have to pitch that night. And so I think that keeps me from, you know, wanting to bounce off the walls or wanting to like laugh with guys like I usually do uh, every other day. But um, I think I definitely have gotten better and able to like at least talk to guys and, you know, be normal a little bit. What, what are you thinking about on game day? Uh, I mean, hopefully I can get some guys out. You know, I think uh, nothing it, too specific. I mean, is that it? Or, I mean, are yeah. you like, anxiety-filled? Well, you get, like, I get nervous. Just, you know, I get nervous for every time I pitch. And so I think that's that for me is a good, uh, you know, mechanism to, you know, just uh, kind of focus on what you got to do and maybe, you know, sometimes think about, you know, certain pitches and, you know, oh, I want to strike this guy out. And so, you know, just kind of visualizing it and stuff like that. It's kind of always on replay throughout the day and stuff like that. Does the game tape that you watch of opposing hitters it help at all? Yeah, I watch. Uh, I never watch myself on video. I don't like doing that. You know, really? I, I know what I've done, so I don't need to see it. But uh, you know, I uh, I like watching you know other left-handed pitchers face the team that I'm pitching against. Um, really, not to watch what they do, but just kind of get a feel of what the guys in the batter's box are going to do, where they're standing, uh, you know, what they're just kind of what they look like, just to get familiar with them and. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a I'm not a huge studier, but I, I definitely uh, I definitely want to be prepared and not you know see some guy that I've never seen before in the batter's box. I want to at least know what he looks like up there. Back when you were 21, catcher Brad Osmus uh, said about you, "quote A lot of young guys with bullpens, they're just going to throw and throw, throw and throw, throw their pitches until it feels right. The pitching coach usually has to drag them off the rubber." Clayton sticks to his routine regardless of how he feels, and he sticks to that routine every single bullpen. Uh, the only guy I've ever seen do that is Roger Clemens. 
Um, I explain why. Save your bullets. You know, I mean, uh, I think I think it's twofold. You know, you know, I don't ever want to blow it out in a bullpen because you know you're not getting anybody out. It doesn't really matter. And then, uh, the yeah, other, I mean, it's a conscious decision for you. Yeah, for sure. You know, it, there's bullpens that are terrible that you know. You know, I understand. A lot of guys just want to keep throwing until they feel better, but. You know, I think by that point during the season, you just got to have enough confidence to know that, hey, it's going to be right when you go out there. You're going to be fine. And, uh, you know, then the other thing is, too, is that, um, you know, I'm a big routine guy. And uh, I, don't, I don't like to say superstitious, but I'm a big routine guy. I like doing the same Slipper. stuff every fifth day. So uh, that's same goes with bullpens, too. What, why does the routine help you? Uh, well, I, th I think my rationale behind it is, you know, every fifth day, I want to make sure that I've done everything I possibly could to be ready for that start. And so if I pitch bad, I don't want to have in the back of my mind, well, if I just, if I didn't change that, if I did that, then, you know, I don't want to have that in the back of my mind. If I didn't pitch well, I just want to know, hey, I didn't pitch good. And that's, that's it. So um, for me, that's, that's probably the main reason why. What, what emotions do you have as you're actually taking the mound? Uh, yeah, that first time, nervous. You know, I, I definitely, uh, you know, I always look around. I always look, uh, I always kind of look around at the stadium and uh, just kind of to kind of gather my surroundings a little bit and just kind of know, just kind of gain some feel a little bit. I always look around and uh, then throw my warm up pitches. Um, and after, you know, once the once that first pitch is thrown, uh, you know, I, I guess it's like for me. What I say to myself is, All right, I remember how to do this. I'll be okay, you know. And but until that first pitch is thrown, you never, you know, you just there's just think, what if, you know, what if I can't even throw a strike today? What if I walk the first four? You know what I mean? Just things like that that, you know, are constantly running through your head. But until I throw that first pitch, you know, ball or strike, just to know that I can at least throw it and it's somewhere near the plate, uh, I feel, I feel, I just gain instant confidence, and then I, I'm good to go from there. You're obviously around other pitchers all the time. To what extent do they share similar feelings walking well, think, to the mound in that first pitch? Uh, I think every pitcher ha feels the nerves. You know, I think uh, every starting pitcher, especially, you know, they. Uh, I think that just shows that you care about what you're doing. You know, you don't want to. You don't want to fail. And uh, you know, I think anytime you don't want to fail at something, there's going to be some nerves because you want to succeed and you don't know if you're going to do it or not. So. Uh, um, I think that everybody has that type of nerve situation, and I don't know if everybody kind of feels that after that first pitch. It might be after they're done with their bullpen, they're they're good, or you know, I think I do feel like there's a certain time though when the nerves switch off and you feel confident in what you're doing. Um, you mentioned you look around the stadium. What what do you see? What do you hear when you're uh, out there on the mound? I just. Uh, I just kind of soak it all in, just for a split second. You know, I'll look up into the right field and, uh, you know, just kind of, just kind of soak it all in. Really, just kind of try to understand what you're doing and where you're at, and uh, not too many people get to do it, and just kind of be thankful for that, and then go compete after that. What about once the game starts? I mean, do you yeah, see or hear really, anything outside of? I just try not to think. Once the game starts, I'm not a big thinker. After just go compete. Really? Yeah. I mean, so you aren't thinking about even certain pitches or. Uh, and you try to think about the next pitch, but other than that, I mean, I'm not. You know, oh, this guy, I need to throw this here. You know, at the end of the day, just go compete and don't let anybody get a hit and just be an absolute bulldog out there. And uh, you know, it sounds you, pretty elementary. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, never, never get tired, never show weakness, and just go out there and absolutely dominate somebody. Have there been moments where 
you've had to avoid showing weakness or try and hide? Uh, you know, you're going to get emotional at times. You know, you're going to be upset with a call or you're going to be, you know, frustrated you gave up a hit or something like that. But, um, you know, I think showing a little emotion is okay. You, you don't need to be a stone face out there. But, uh, you know, you definitely have to hold some back for sure. Uh, I'm sure your favorite topic, the uh, National League Championship Series, um, Dodgers-Cardinals Game 6. Uh, you end up, you know, I, I think giving up 10 hits, uh, seven runs. Uh, the Dodgers end up losing the game. The Cardinals advanced to the World Series. How hard was that loss for you to take? It was pretty tough. Yeah, I mean, anytime your season ends, it's, it's no fun. So, and then, uh, you know, when you're a main reason why it ends, it's also uh, not a great, uh, great feeling. So, um, you know, we, we didn't, uh, you know, we didn't score any runs that day, so that makes me feel a little bit better, even if I pitched awesome. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we didn't, I, I didn't pitch well. And, uh, you know, who knows, if I had given up one or two runs, they might have felt like they were in it, and they might have scored some runs, too. So, um, you know, you can't help but feel, you know, pretty responsible for that. And, um, you know, it's, it's never a good feeling. You know, even, even flying back with the team the next day, all the guys were, you know, pretty normal and joking around, saying great season and stuff. But... You know, until you kind of digest it for yourself, it took me a lot longer than a day or two. Yeah, how long did it take? Uh, I don't know. I'll let you know when I get there. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, once it's, you know, you always have a bitter taste in your mouth. I mean, I still... Like, what, what do you well, still Well, it's no fun. To, I mean, it's still no fun to talk about. It's still no fun to think about. And uh, so that probably means that I'm not completely over it yet. Um, you know, I'm not staying up at night thinking about it, but uh, it's definitely not... Uh, you, know, you definitely don't want to fail. You know, you definitely don't want to fail uh, your last game. And you know, I think until you pitch that next game, uh, you know, you're always going to have doubts. Yeah, you, I mean, your friend and close friend and teammate Sean Tallison said, I mean, it was obviously kind of devastating, and that you'll think about it all off season long. Um, yeah. How how true? Do you well, think that is? I mean, there's there's some truth to it. You know, I'm not going to think about it every single day, but. Uh, you know, it puts a it puts a damper on the season that we had, and um, I yeah, I think until opening day, you know, it's it's the last game we played as a team. So, uh, you know, there's there's something to be said for that. To what extent is it great motivation, though? Uh, I don't need any motivation. Okay. I'll, I'll be uh, you know, it's I definitely want to go past that. So, uh, you know, that's no, I definitely don't want to. You know, you don't get to go to the playoffs every day, so or every season, and. Um, you know, it's definitely something where you don't ever want to fail like that again. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it could be like a fear of failure. That's probably a good motivation. Uh, that was something you, you realized though early on when you got to the big leagues, right? That you were just kind of expecting that you'll be back in the playoffs and then yeah, yeah. it doesn't always happen. Yeah, you take it for granted. You know, you get called up and you're in there and uh, you're just like, oh, wow, I'm going to the playoffs again. Great. You know, I'll get to go two years in a row. All right, this is normal. And then you go those three years and you don't go. Um, it makes you uh, – this year I, I really tried to relish that. You know, I really tried to understand that, wow, some guys never get to go to the playoffs. We were talking about this a little before the interview. Um, you're supposed to take two weeks off after the season to give your body a, a, a rest, you know, just take – take some time yeah uh, but you have a really difficult time doing that right yeah I mean I take a week I do take a week but I, I feel like my my body almost feels worse when I stop doing stuff so like after that week I feel way worse than I ever did during the season um, and so I try to get going and then the next week 
you know, even if I, you know, I, I'll go shoot hoops, or I'll go run around the block, or, you know, ride the bike, or do something, and that, uh, it kind of triggers it again, and I start feeling, as long as I can sweat a little bit every day, I feel like that's, that's great, but then after those two weeks, you know, you start getting into lifting again, and getting into the fun stuff. Well, your wife was saying, I think it was maybe L.A. where you guys were after the season ended, you were at some event, you come home at like 10 o'clock at night, and she says, you know, just go work out tomorrow, and your, your response is something to the effect of, well, somebody started working out today, and I don't want to be a day behind all off season. Yeah, yeah well, it's, you don't, you don't. Uh, you know, there's always minor league season ends a month earlier than you, so they get those, they get more rest, so they're going to be, you know, they're going to have that extra time to get ready to go, and, you know, we went into the playoffs, so the, the 20, you know, whatever other teams that didn't make it to the playoffs, they had that extra rest, so for me, it's almost like, you're kind of behind the eight ball immediately because you went to the playoffs. And what, like in your head, what difference does? Well, two weeks make? is a big deal. Two weeks of lifting is a big deal. So you got to catch up fast. Can't take any extra days. Really? Yeah. So would you, because of that, not really allow yourself the, you know, full time that maybe well, you're? Yeah, definitely throwing. You got to take the normal time. You know, I'm a big believer in that. Um, you definitely have to let your arm recover. Um, but as far as lifting and stuff, you know, it, it gradually, you know, once the season starts, your lifting gets a little bit easier. And then towards the end of the season, it even gets a little bit easier. So, you know, you're already, you're already losing strength, whether you want to or not, throughout the season. So, uh, you know, by the time the offseason rolls around, you need, to, you need to start trying to build it back up again. So Joe Torre, when he was your manager, invites you to fly in the Dodger team plane back to a benefit in LA with uh, Sandy Koufax, who's yeah. also uh, on the plane. What was that experience like for you so early on in your career? Uh, yeah, it was awesome. You know, I hadn't met Sandy a few times before that, but you know, LA to Phoenix is about an hour flight. So, you know, to get that full hour there and back with him is pretty cool. You know, just, uh, he just kind of talked. He's a normal guy, which uh, obviously you think of Sandy Koufax, you think of, wow, I mean, it's how, how do you have a normal conversation with that guy? But, uh, it was uh, it was awesome just for me to get to talk to him and really just kind of hang out. Well, and I think you've talked to or worked with him since uh, 2007. Is that? Yeah, I mean he's always he always comes to spring training, so he always at least watches a couple bullpens. And um, you know the great thing about him is he's not like, hey, you have to do this exactly like me because that's how I did it and that's how I was the best ever. You know, so he he kind of just watches you for what you have and. He'll give you little suggestions here or there, but he, uh, the great thing about him is he's not there to you know, change you. He's just there to help you, and that's, uh, that's a pretty cool thing. What do you think you've most learned from him or has been the uh, best part of your time around him? Uh, well, he simplifies things pretty you know, baseball-wise, and for me that's great because I don't, I don't like to overcomplicate things. So um, you know, I think for me, uh, you know, his, him, the mentality of the way he pitched was huge. Just, uh, you know, just go compete. Just go be aggressive. Just go... You know, at the end of the day, just get the guys out, you know, and that's that's great. You know, obviously there's some more stuff that goes into that, but just talking the mental side of it with him and uh, just seeing how simple he made things, it was uh, it was pretty cool for me. So ping pong, you said you're pretty dominating. Did I say those words? Is that I, a quote? I, I've, I've heard that on you know, multiple occasions. You try, you try and be humble, but, you know, ping pong is one of those things where it is, it's a huge... I mean, it's up there with baseball. For yeah, me. I was going to say, you yeah. seem more confident, actually, from what you've said about yeah, ping pong I, I love than you ping do pong. in your yeah, baseball I, uh, skill. I really do. Ping pong is, uh, is such, a, such a fun thing for me. I definitely, uh, you know, my buddies are really good, too. So we've got some great matches, a lot of doubles going on. And, 
you know, we had a tournament. Sean and I were partners in uh, spring training. Um, so it's just a great sport. I love it. How did you get into it? I don't, you know, my mom, uh, growing up, one of our friends was giving theirs away. So we got, we got one and, uh, you know, I played her growing up a lot. Um, she, uh, she was pretty solid and, uh, it was a good learning point. And then from there, just, we've it's still the same table, never bought a table, still the same one I've had since I was 15. So it was, uh, it's awesome. That's it for my chat with Clayton Kershaw to see video clips from our interview, including me attempting to survive a game of ping pong with Clayton, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And before you go, a friendly reminder to leave a rating and review. Thanks again for listening.